We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and operational consultancy firm within the addiction treatment space. Today, we are talking with Ted Bender. He is the CEO of the Treehouse, an addiction campuses facility, and also the former CEO of Turning Point, another addiction campuses facility. So he's got a very interesting conversation for us around what it takes to either go into a struggling center and improve things or go into a center that's working and accelerate that growth. But first, let's go to a word from our sponsors from Stone Ridge Partners. Stone Ridge Partners is a boutique M&A advisory firm that exclusively works with home health, hospice, and behavioral health companies. Stone Ridge was founded 20 years ago and closes the most deals in the lower middle market in this space. Please reach out to us via our website or jacob at stoneridgepartners.com if we can be a resource to your treatment center. We'd love to help you in any way we can. Thanks. Again, great guys. I highly recommend reaching out to them if you are interested in buying or selling an operation um, within the addiction treatment or behavioral health space. So we talk with Ted and we first start off on the clinical end of things. You know, as always, you guys know that I'm quite interested in clinical quality and what a good program looks like and how that connects to the success um, of any addiction treatment center program, um, even from the business end, because a good business is good clinical in this industry. From there, we explore the different topics about his career journey, how he's moved from a therapist and a clinician into an administrative role and now the CEO of a a very large 200-bed facility in um, Scurvy, Texas, and what it takes to go into a facility in terms of how to build a team, how to build a culture, what are some easy wins in terms of maybe cutting costs or improving uh, inquiries and admissions in the center, and particularly how that all connects to building community within the area that you operate in. Um, so a lot of excellent insights. I really appreciate Ted taking the time to come on the show, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation. You're coming at us from your Texas location, right, with addiction campuses. Can you tell us uh, just a little bit about your background and then, you know, where you are, where you came from, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you, Nick, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm, I'm currently the campus CEO of the Treehouse in Scurry, Texas. <clears throat> I'm also the, the CEO of our sister facility, Turning Point, in um, South Haven, Mississippi. Um, so my story, I, I kind of came into this business in a roundabout way. I think a lot of people that get into addiction treatment uh, kind of find themselves on that path. Um, I, I was a research psychologist for, for a good portion of my career, and spent a lot of time um, working on and um, researching suicidality. Um, did a lot of my, most of my publications were in suicide research. Um, and I started to work for the Military Suicide Research Consortium, which was started at uh, Florida State University um, and, and Denver. And um, I really became very focused on military suicide. And this was a, at a time where um, veteran suicide was at an all high, all-time high. Um, and then when I went to in my residency um, at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, um, I started working with a lot of vets there. And almost all of the time, um, every case I was working on with post-traumatic stress disorder, there was a co-occurring substance use disorder. 
So after seeing that kind of over and over again, I got very interested in treating addiction. Uh, and then post-residency, I got a job in South Florida as a primary therapist and then kind of got, got into management from there. Really interesting. So I know today we're going to be talking quite a bit about going into different treatment programs and your experience on you know, the CEO or the administrative level and either, you know, turning around centers or taking centers and pushing them to the next level. Um, but that, I think it's worth taking a detour here quick because I didn't know that about your background in terms of suicidality. Where do you see from a clinical standpoint the overlap between things like PTSD, suicidality, and then um, addiction? Well, I think that more most recently what we've been seeing with the suicide rates specifically is they've been skyrocketing over the last few years kind of in line with the overdose death rates. Um, and <clears throat> that is very significant because suicidality in the United States has, for besides the last few years, was fairly stable for a while, 30 to 33,000 completed suicides each year. But now that number has topped 45,000. Um, and as you know, with the overdose epidemic, you know, in 2017, we were over 70,000 overdose deaths, and that's probably slightly underreported. Um, I, now there is specific research coming out now showing that there is indeed a link between increases in suicidality and increases in overdose death. So I think the two are heavily interrelated, and I've just begun to really explore that relationship through the science and the literature. And then the other piece of your question was the, the trauma uh, in, in most treatment facilities in the United States, if you, if you are in treatment for a severe substance use disorder, there's a 60 to 70% chance that you've also experienced at least one significant traumatic event in your life. So, so in sum, all, all, all three of them are heavily correlated, heavily linked, and, and need, need to be treated as a whole rather than just kind of taking one piece of it. Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, it, it's an evolution in the field that took, in my opinion, ridiculously long, right, to kind of establish this idea of dual diagnosis and co-occurring disorders. I mean, it's really coming from the same life experiences and different functions in the brain. You know, they're all interrelated and integrated with each other. And I, for, for whatever reason, we had them so separated for so long. I think it's more kind of historical in the way that the field developed independently, with it, which is a bit strange. But, you know, you can maybe speak to this a little bit better since you're more up to date with the research. I know I'm going to mess up the numbers because I haven't read some of it in a while. But, you know, the highest rate of overdose deaths, right, are generally coming from, you know, I think it's white males age, what, 30 to 55, no education or high school level education, single, living in depressed or poverty stricken areas, right? So it becomes pretty clear when you look at that, that a lot of these overdoses are, are more passive, passive suicide attempts, I think, you know, would you agree with that? Yeah, it's one of those things that are very hard to kind of parse apart. Um, you know, for example, with, with overdose death rates in, in general, sometimes they're labeled as a suicide or it may have just been an accidental overdose. So sometimes, yes, it can be very difficult to identify which was which. Um, and interestingly about what you said about the most at-risk age group, and this is something I didn't really even know until a little while ago, about two years ago, the actual, the, the highest or the most at-risk age group for overdose death, a lot of people think, including myself at one point, that it's the kind of 19 to 25 year old IV heroin addicts, but really the, the most at risk age group in the United States is 45 to 54 year olds. Yeah, there we go. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think people don't realize that. Right. I mean, it's pretty hard to overdose on heroin, you know, fentanyl and some of these other synthetics, this is a different story, but you know, unless you're mixing it like intentionally with benzos or alcohol, you know, you're probably not going to OD on it. So that there is often a level of intentionality. And, you know, I think sometimes, especially when you get into these rural economically depressed areas, you know, people don't understand, you know, the EMT, the law enforcement, they're like, well, we just pulled this guy back, you know, from the brink of death, we use Narcan, brought him back to life, and he just overdosed again, you know, 10 minutes later, and they make this assumption that it was because, well, you know, the, the pull of the drug is so strong or something like that, you know, the addiction is so powerful, but that's that's not the case, right? Otherwise, we'd be seeing the, the younger age groups doing the same thing. That's why, you know, in my opinion, and based on, you know, some of the information I've read, it really just seems to be more passive suicide attempts. Um, they're, they're older, they don't have anything to live for anymore, and they're just trying to, they're either crying out for help or trying to end it, one or the other. Yeah, and oftentimes too, um, it's, if you know, that older population, 45 to 54 year olds, they're more likely to be on, you know, multiple medications, they are more likely to be mixing benzos or anti-anxiety meds with pain medications for even, you know, sometimes legitimate chronic pain issues. Um, and as we get older as well, our ability to kind of metabolize these medications slows down. So there's lots of risk factors there for accidental overdose. And then you're also more likely, like you were kind of mentioning, to be more isolated. You're more likely to be divorced or widowed. Uh, and then you mentioned some of the socioeconomic status issues kind of all plays together um, in developing one of the worst epidemics we've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's um, kind of jump back into the, the business end of things. So you've been, I think you've been an administrator or at least at a senior level at um, five different facilities. Is that correct? Um, well, with two different, three different companies. Um, when I first got started, I was, I was doing just primary therapy work up in Rhode Island. Uh, then I went to a facility in South Florida I was there for several for five years, and I, I kind of worked my way through the ranks. I was a, a primary therapist, and I was very happy in that role. I actually loved it. Um, I I turned down offers for management positions many times. I was very happy. I liked working with the patients, but finally they wore me down, and I, I took a clinical director role. Uh, I did that for a while. Um, really loved that, and then moved into more of an administrator role of a very large PHP IOP program. Uh, and then into the kind of executive director role in Houston, Texas, um, running a kind of a satellite facility of the company I was working for in Florida. Um, and then I was lucky enough to come across um, an ad from Addiction Campuses um, about late December 2017. And um, that's where I've been ever since. So can you just tell us actually briefly a little bit about that transition? You know, what was it like to go from a therapist to a clinical director to an administrator? You know, feelings, thoughts, differences in focus. Yeah, so it, it was very interesting. Um, I think it would have been much more difficult for me if I didn't have any previous management experience. Because as a primary therapist, you know, a lot of places, you know, it's like you're running your own little private practice, you know. Uh, I had my caseload. I decided when I saw them, and as long as I, you know, did my groups and treated my patients well and got the, you know, the paperwork done, I could kind of schedule it how I wanted. Um, but then moving into the the management role, where there was a clinical director or administrator or direct or whatever, um, you got to be able to really manage people. Uh, and I had experience in management before I got into this business. I was a restaurant manager. I was a gas station manager, a Domino's pizza manager. So I had some of the experience of managing a, um, 
managing employees and all the different intricacies that went in there. So it wasn't as much of a jump as it would have been if I hadn't had any of that experience. Um, but it was, it was, I always feel like I'm in the learning phase. You know, I'm, I'm never stopped learning um, because I, I, like I, like we were saying, I've bounced around from, you know, director to administrator to now campus CEO. So I'm constantly learning new things and I'm, I'm always kind of um, looking for that next best way to help, you know, drive the organization. Oh, very interesting. So in that journey, would you say that therapists are one of the easier groups of people to manage? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I would not say that at all. Um, you know, since having been a primary therapist, I, I certainly can understand what their day to day is like. And I think that's very helpful because I know, I know what the burden of the paperwork is and, you know, managing a caseload of 10 or 11 or 12 or and running your groups and getting all that done in a reasonable 40 to 50 hour work week can be very challenging, especially if you're doing it well. Um, so I do understand, you know, their, their plight. Um, but again, um, keeping them all happy and, and, um, you know, I've always, especially as a clinical director, I felt it was my responsibility to really pay attention to their emotional health, uh, and be, uh, you know, a support on that aspect as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have a lot of that secondary trauma. I think that we, we need to focus more on the industry. Um, but it is a challenge. I was just having lunch, um, before we get on the phone here with, uh, center owner from uh, Colorado who was in town and, you know, we were just kind of talking about the, the challenges of managing a clinical team sometimes. <laughs> Great work that people are doing, but um, I think because of that level of stress and, and some other issues, it can be, can be a challenge to get everyone pointing in the same direction. Uh, so maybe that's a good jumping off point, actually, before we kind of work from the, um, the Mississippi, the Turning Point Center, you know, you were just talking about uh, here at the Texas facility, that you were doing a lot of trainings for the staff. Um, and this is kind of one of the first things that you do when you come into a new program. Do you want to talk about why that's the case and what the focus of those trainings is? Yeah, absolutely. So we, in the addiction industry, in the facilities that, at addiction campuses, we, we don't just focus on the substance use disorder. Um, that is the primary diagnosis. But uh, as you know, that the comorbid or you know, co-occurring illnesses are more the norm than the exception. Um, when you have a severe use disorder and, you know, things like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, personality disorders are, are very, very common. Uh, and it's, of course, trauma and traumatic disorders. So it's incredibly important that the staff, not just the therapists, but all of the staff are trained in how to deal with these different types of combinations. Um, so uh, I put a ton of effort, energy and money into training the staff because it's critical that everybody from, you know, the, the CEO uh, down to every single position in the, in the industry or in the company has an idea at least of what to do in certain situations, how to de-escalate crises, how to speak to patients who are coming from a completely irrational or illogical state, whether they're in active psychosis or really struggling. And there are certain ways to do all of those things. And you need everybody on board with that in order to um, in order to reach the best possible outcomes, and most importantly, increase and maintain safety of the patients and the staff on campus. So we were having this conversation with Andrew Sadoli when he was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and from an administrative standpoint, you know, whether it's the clinical director or the CEO, there, there's this balance that you have to try to put into place. 
um, for standardization in your center, like making sure that everyone's receiving a similar level of care, a similar style of care, but also allowing for that high level of differentiation that's going to come from, you know, um, therapists, personal perspectives, as well as individualized treatment from the patient end. You know, how do you balance that, um, you know, at the centers that you're managing? That's a, that's a great question, and it's always one of my, my biggest priorities going into any any new place. <clears throat> Excuse me. So kind of take that into two parts. When I look at the group therapy, if you're doing a CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy group or a dialectical behavior therapy group or motivational enhancement therapy or whatever kind of group you're doing, it's critically important that that group is being structured around a manual-based, research-based format. Um, things I've seen in the past um, going into new facilities, like one of the first things I'll do is let me see the group curriculum. I'll get some sort of group curriculum. Sometimes it's better than others. And then the next thing I want to do is, okay, how do we know which group we're doing on Tuesday, the 23rd? Um, okay, there's a schedule. Okay, great. How do we know that the three different group leaders are doing the same group on that day? Is anyone auditing this? So one of the first things I will do is I'll just pop in and do 10 minute audits. I'll sit in the group, see what kind of what's being delivered and if it's consistent across the other groups. So step one for me always is standardize research-based groups um, and making sure that the group leaders are trained well to deliver that content in a standardized way. Now, the other piece you're mentioning <clears throat> is the individualization and that's you know where the treatment planning really comes in. And, and I think you were mentioning too, you know, therapists have different styles, different strengths, different things like that. Uh, and that part does need to be highly individualized. So obviously we're gonna treat the substance use disorder, um, but what are the co-occurring illnesses, you know, other problems? You know, maybe it's um, significant family system disease, or maybe it's severe recurring major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. Whatever that case may be also needs to be treated equally efficiently and with the same kind of tenacity, um, you know, utilizing every resource that we have. And then the, another piece too, that's incredibly important. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves. If you're going to be treating, you know, substance use disorder, let's just say alcohol use disorder. Um, and also you're going to be treating major depressive disorder. We need to be, ha we need to have specific treatment plans for each of those disorders that are again, backed and rooted in the most up-to-date research and science. So, you know, if you, if you talk to five different therapists who all say that they're CBT trained and CBT focused, and then you start asking them what CBT is and how you deliver that CBT, a lot of times you're going to get five different answers. But we don't need to reinvent the wheel. CBT has been vetted hundreds of times, and there are manuals that are designed to give you that information. So individualizing the treatment plan, but when we've identified the disorder that we're going to treat, delivering that research-based, scientifically proven treatment. That's great. So point of curiosity here for me, let's say that we're running a process group, right? I, I find that sometimes clinicians can be very didactic, right? Where it's like in the teaching world, we used to call it chalk and talk, right? Where the teacher's just talking the entire time. Um, but on the treatment end, you can also have the other end of the spectrum where everyone just sits around and shares and there doesn't seem to be any really focused, um, you know, group work or CBT. You know, can you just talk to that a little bit? You know, what, what do you do in terms of either training or maybe what you're looking for when a clinician's in a process group setting and that balance between how much they're engaging versus how much the group is sharing and how focused those conversations get? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I used to think about this a lot as a primary therapist. And I ran, you know, probably a thousand primary groups in my time. And I often found that the best groups were the ones where I acted more of just kind of a topic and guidance facilitator, and the groups were doing most of the talking. Um, now, of course, you got you to make sure they stay on track. I always had an agenda for all of my process groups, whether it was going to be that day, um, you know, doing, you know, kind of motivational enhancement group type work where we were doing uh, pro, pro con lists or uh, decision matrix or, or motivational balance, things like that. I would have the, the agenda set. I might have some worksheets. But once I brought up the topic, then I started going around the room. A lot of the best groups, process groups I had and the feedback, most importantly, that I got from the patients were the ones where I would bring up the topic, let them take it from there, and then just keep them on track. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I'm of the same perspective, but you know, I'm, I'm technically not a clinician, so I always like to hear other people's perspectives on it. So you're talking a lot about the clinical as you're going in, right? And so is that your primary focus when you go in as an administrator into a new facility? Or, you know, how do you balance that aspect of it versus sales and marketing and HR and business operations and everything else? Yeah, that, that's really, you're right. Just one piece of the puzzle is the clinical piece. Um, I'm also very um, policy and procedure oriented. So another thing that I'll do when I come into a new facility is, if it's a new company or if it's just transferring within the same company, um, making sure we know the policies and procedures backwards and forwards, and then pick, taking those policies and making sure that we're following them at every level of the, of the campus. Um, so, you know, from medication management to nursing procedures, documentation issues, um, from just top to bottom. Um, you know, the, my, my biggest, my most important things to me really are transparency, policy and procedure, uh, and ethical practice. So, kind of as a whole, I'll spend a lot of time with the clinical department, you know, making sure that we're delivering the right kind of treatment and the groups what we were talking about. But I spent a ton of time on those other features as well. And as far as um, the marketing kind of, um, you know, business development aspect, um, I, I, I have a policy for with my PR department and my business development team that I, I will never say no. If you need me to, to go speak at a conference or you got a TV interview that it's happening in 20 minutes, uh, and I got to be ready for it. I, I never turn it down. Um, I always do everything I can because really, you know, developing that, that those, those relationships, especially, you know, kind of more locally closer to your campus, um, really, I think is the, the key to success in this, in this business. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's a point that um, a lot of programs are missing, right? They're, they're looking for these short-term immediate gratification kind of conversion style campaigns. But the most successful clients we have and other programs like yours that I see that are successful have a strong um, community integration and PR component to, to their marketing. In terms of the, um, let's kind of just give, let's go back to the clinical as an example. So let's say you come into a program and you've got, you know, five of your clinicians are delivering CBT, but it is, you know, of varying degrees or, you know, with different philosophies, that kind of thing. What's your expectation in terms of how fast you're able to get everyone on the same page through trainings and one-on-ones and things like that? How long does it take to, to move that needle? I think just kind of from recent experience, <clears throat> excuse me, my, um, the work I did at, at Turning Point, for example, um, again, got there in late 2017. I think it took us about 
four or five months to really get it to where I was really happy. Um, we kind of, we started by kind of just doing more trainings on specific types of group work. Then we moved into restructuring and standardizing the group structure based on, you know, available manuals. Um, and then really it's, it's kind of cultural buy-in as well. So some people are, you know, change, some people hate change, whether it's good or bad. Um, so if, if some people didn't, you know, get on board or weren't, weren't on board with delivering treatment that way, they, they kind of weeded themselves out. We brought on some kind of fresh eyes and people who are more engaged and willing to do that. So it's taken, it's, it's been different everywhere I've gone. Um, but the buy-in piece and then the actual training and restructuring has usually taken me three to four months. Makes sense. I'm hearing in a lot of the things that you're talking about, you know, while it, it's hard to define, it almost seems like you're focused on building a culture in, in the programs that you go into, you know, would that be an accurate observation? Absolutely. Uh, um, the, the health of the culture of your, of your staff and your organization, the one of the most important things to me. Um, when I was, when I was interviewing with and looking for a new role and with addiction campuses, one of the things, actually the thing that drew me, to addiction campuses was their company culture. Um, it, it, they have a, there's a very strong feel at addiction campus of togetherness and teamwork uh, and family. Um, and when I came to Treehouse um, just a couple months ago, I've never been to a single facility where that culture was stronger. Um, I mean, they anytime the emails go out that you know are addressed to the entire employee population, it, it always starts with "Hey, fam." Um, everybody kind of really relates to the kind of the family nature of this business. A lot of the people that have been working here have been here for years. Um, and it, that kind of strength and culture, I think, is if you don't have that as a foundation, it's very hard to, to grow a successful company in this business. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's possible but it'll, it'll fall apart eventually, right? Which is where I think people get misled sometimes. They're like, oh, well, it worked without one. Well, sure, but now your, your company's, you know, falling apart as... We can make some make some observations of different companies in the field right now. <laughs> um, well, that was something yeah. that struck you know, me. Of, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. One more thing I, would, I think I would say about that, too, is, you know, in in this business specifically, if you choose willingly to work in the addiction space, it is very difficult work. As I know, you know, it, it, this is not easy job. Um, and if you if you if you work in this field, you are dedicated to saving lives. And that's why you come to work every day. There's much easier work out there. Um, so if you if you are dedicating your life to saving other people and the culture is you know kind of cutthroat or demeaning on a daily basis, I mean that's just a miserable experience, and I, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the impetuses for bringing you on the show was you know my my visit to the campus there. You know, in Scurry, I was just really impressed with exactly all those things that you talked about. I mean, people were just so knowledgeable. They were so focused on clinical care. Um, everyone had been there for a significant period of time. Like it was just a really impressive experience. And it's not something I always get, you know, at treatment programs that I go into. So it just, yeah, it, it was, you know, if anyone else, you know, is listening and has a chance to get down to the treehouse, I would highly recommend it. Um, but so on this culture end, you know, it's very hard to measure, but is, is there anything that you put in place that you do to try to measure or how do you assess that you're moving in the right direction with some of these initiatives? I think that, you know, for, first of all, my, my focus has always been on transparency. 
Um, so I try to share as much as I can with the, the management team and the employee population. I try to share with them exactly why we're doing what we're doing and what the changes are going to be. Um, and kind of what I was saying before is any change is difficult. Um, it was, you know, definitely difficult for the employees when I came on board as a new leadership. Um, but I, I try to do it my best to be as transparent as possible and give a lot of rationale for why we're doing things differently. Um, but I also really try to put my employees first. Um, that that's a model that's worked very well for other companies. Like um, one company I really I really admire, Southwest Airlines. I think they do a great job of that. Uh, and and I think that you know if you I really do believe wholeheartedly if you take care of your employees, you do the best you can for them, then they're going to do the best they can for the patient. So I kind of operate from that model. Yeah, that's great. I love Southwest. I'm flying on Southwest next week. <laughs> They're kind of my go-to choice. You know, but I used to work at Disney when we were building their Chinese operation, right? And that was it. That was called our, our value chain, right? You know, it was, okay, you have a focus on your staff and you give them an amazing positive experience or magical, we always said at Disney. Um, and then the staff would then be encouraged to provide a magical experience to the guests or your customers. And then that would in turn drive your bottom line, right? So profit was a function of the value that you created, not a goal in and of itself. And I mean, it's worked incredibly well for Disney. It's worked incredibly well for Southwest. You know, so I 100% agree with you that that's really the model. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you got to put patients first in this business for sure. But if you don't take care of your staff, they're not going to be they're not going to be happy and they're not going to be healthy enough to really deliver that excellent care, which is I know was needed, you know, to help save people's lives. And that's always been again, that's been my focus. Right. So with that care that's needed for staff, especially in this field that has a lot of emotional intensity, you know, do you put any systems or trainings or processes in place, support in place for, you know, that kind of secondary trauma that everyone um, tends to experience in the field? Yeah, I mean, we, we do um, weekly kind of um, weekly therapist meetings, for example, um, treatment team meetings. And that is designed to kind of discuss the issues and things going on, but it's also designed to be kind of a, you know, a um, therapeutic session for people where they can get together and support each other. Um, we try to um, do special events for our employees. One thing I'm going to be doing soon is a, uh, is a cookout where the management team is out there on the grill serving, serving up the burgers to all the, all the employees. Um, at Turning Point, we, have, we, just have, we, we do great stuff like this all the time. Um, one of our, our employees at Turning Point, Stacy Dodd, has just got, he's got a heart of gold. This guy just given, given his entire life to treating and helping people with addiction. And he sets up events for employees all the time, whether it's bringing up a, you know, a shaved ice truck to the front of the building right after lunch, or we, we do as much as we can to, to connect with our employees, to talk with them on a personal level, to help them through any difficulties that they're having. Um, and we, and we do our best, you know, it's, it's tough in this business to, to really, you know, um, to really make everybody happy all the time, considering, you know, the, the type of work we're doing, but we, we do the, do our best to help, you know, with the mental health and the, the um, kind of the work-life balance piece. For sure. So let's get some kind of maybe more specific examples or thoughts of yours. So let's say that you go into a new program, you know, what are the three or five main things that you're going to look at that you think might be some quick wins to help the facility, you know, progress or, or move to the next level? Yeah, excellent question. Um, first, the first thing I'll look at in that scenario is, is waste. Is there any is there any waste happening? Um, you know, it could be something as simple as utility bills, or um, are we spending too much money on unnecessary um, you know 
client supplies or do we have employees that have been on, you know, 17 different um, performance improvement plans and no one's just been able to kind of pull the trigger and, you know, get better quality in. Um, so I'll look at that stuff first, but, but my, my first, my goal in the first 30 days usually is what I've tried to do is talk to every employee under my, under my care. Um, and at the treehouse, that was almost 200 people. So I made good progress. I still have some people on the night shift I need to speak with. Um, but I, I, I get the best information and kind of, uh, sense for the health of the organization by talking to, to as many people as I can and just keep it free flowing. You know, I'll, I'll say, Hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. Um, I'd really love to know what you think we do well and where, where do you think we could improve? And that's it. That's all I'll say. And then I'll just take notes on that. And then once I'm done with that, I have a much better idea of what I need to do to formulate a plan to improve. Um, but yeah, I often find, you know, first things first, you know, in any business, whether it's this business or, or anything else, you know, you got to shore up your expenses and you, you got to, you got to make sure that you're spending wisely. Um, you're running a safe and um, competent organization as long as you can um, and really work on make, making sure that you're just not leaking or hemorrhaging funds for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of programs hemorrhaging funds for no reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, really easy to, it's really easy to do. You know, if yeah. you're not really paying attention to every penny that you're spending or have really good accounting in place, um, it's pretty easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard, right? You know, I kind of laugh, but I guess I, I've got a lot of experience with it, you know, because you're, you're doing, you're focused on other things, right? You know, maybe clinical is your thing or maybe marketing is your thing or, you know, whatever it is. And so you've got your focus and you're not paying attention to all these other, you know, needles and dials that are moving every which way. Um, and especially, you know, when, when revenue was good, you don't pay attention to it, right? It's like, oh, well, everything's working. So it's fine. I'm not going to mess with it. You know, but then the second that things, you know, normalize uh, is what I would say with this field, you know, then it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> it really wasn't working. It just kind of seemed like it was because we, we were doing so well. Yeah, you, you can't get comfortable. That's for sure. I mean, it's like you said, you know, you could outrun problems and labor problems and labor costs in the past through, you know, huge realization rates or, you know, um, you know, what was going on a few years ago, but, you know, things got tightened up. The, the regulations have increased and a lot of ways have improved the, the industry, I think. Um, but, you know, you got to be constantly in, innovating and adapting or you're, or you're not going to survive. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. You know, I mean, I think so many, I think I've talked about on the show a couple of times here where it just people got stuck in the past and things changed around them and they refused to adapt to those changes and, and they closed, you know, within six months. Um, you've got to be able to understand your position in the marketplace or whatever you want to call it. Um, but understand that how you're relevant and how you deliver value is going to have to change. It's not going to be stable all the time. Um, so on, on that comment, you know, are there, what have you seen as uh, most significant changes affecting the field or what innovations have you um, seen put into place that have been effective in addressing those changes? Well, I think one of the biggest things that, that we, you know, anyone that's been working in this business is aware of is that when the Google advertising structure took a dive, um, so as you know, there are many, many companies who are just completely dependent upon the Google ad structure. And then when they decided to tighten up, um, a lot of people got, you know, kind of punched in the face, so to speak. Um, so I think one thing I learned through that, and I was with a company that, that, that definitely took a hit there at the time. What I learned through that is that you, know, you really have to make sure that you are not only innovating and adapting, but diversifying the way that you market and try to build business. 
And one thing that I um, love about addiction campuses is that they kind of saw it coming ahead of time, which I was impressed with. And they had, you know, another plan in place, which was a very strong business development team, uh, you know, nationwide team. Um, and, you know, working with them you know, since I came to addiction campuses has, has shown me that it really is about, you know, developing those relationships with other referral sources, hospitals, doctors, um, where you're going to have the most effectiveness of, of getting patients um, to your treatment centers. And if you, you know, you kind of just put it all into one digital strategy and just hope nothing ever changes, then again, your, your, your lack of innovation and adaptation sends you to bankruptcy. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely kills a lot of programs, you know, whether it's investing all in business development or all in AdWords or all in SEO, you know, you just can't be dependent on a single channel for your business. It's just not sustainable. Besides the fact that you lose all these synergistic effects of, you know, integrating the channels and having an overall marketing lift, you know, um, but I think the field just has a long way to go in terms of sophistication when it comes to the business models, as well as the, the marketing diversification within centers. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's really two pronged um, issue. You know, there's one is like how to run the business and how to do that right, and then two, how to deliver the actual care and the treatment in a way that's not only going to you know improve patient outcomes in the short term, but the long term. You know, what are what are they doing after they leave your facility? So it's uh it's it's this kind of a two pronged approach where you got to be kind of constantly fighting and focusing on both in order to stay relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it, it always comes back down to clinical care, right? I mean, the quality yeah, of the clinical yeah. care, that, that's the value that you're delivering as a treatment program. And so if yep. your clinical care is good and focus on long-term outcomes, which, you know, not a lot of centers have been, frankly, right? They've, they've done the 27-day model and they haven't had aftercare in place or they haven't had alumni outreach in place. Um, I think more and more are realizing that has to change, but it, it's been a big gap. Yeah, I mean, we're, this industry, the, the insurance industry is moving towards a value-based system. Um, you know, it's not going to be enough anymore to say, hey, you know, 75% of the patients that come through our doors complete treatment. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> but what about the next 12 months, you know? Um, and being able to capture some of that data, and, you know, I think is going to be just absolutely critical to the future of this business. And we, we recently partnered with a company called MAP, you're probably familiar with. Yeah, I love MAP. Um, great. Where, yeah, yeah, we, we like we love them too, and uh, we uh, so we've been doing we've been working with them for a few months now, and that data is really starting to come in, and you know we're going to be able to actually see what the long term value is of what we're delivering, uh, instead of just saying yeah we're great we're successful we do a good job okay as evidenced by what yeah right. Right. There, there has to be numbers around it. You know, when you talk to the map guys, I love them because they're so data driven, you know, but that's exactly the question they're always asking. Well, well show me these outcomes. What, what are these great outcomes and how long term are they? You know, how sustainable are they? Um, and you have to have those numbers if you're going to make the case both to pr sorry, pr prospective patients that are coming in, but also to, to the payers if you want higher reimbursement rates. So other elements, you know, you're going into a new center. Any other key things that you look for that you haven't kind of mentioned yet that people or listeners, I guess, would would should <laughs> would be prudent for them to also pay attention to? Yeah, you know, another thing that I think about a lot, and depending on which center I've been to, which company I was at, you know, depending on the amount of resources I had, because this isn't easy to do. Um, I think it's also really important to remember that different demographics, different people with different drugs of choice may need different kinds of group structures. 
Um, you know, for example, there, there's pretty good evidence to show that um, alcoholics over the age of 50 do better in specific groups for them with all people of that age group uh, and drug of choice. That's one example. Or, you know, maybe you have a different kind of group, uh, relapse prevention type group that focuses on the, you know, the 18 to 25 year old IV heroin users. So also really not just, you know, just kind of when you throw 30 to 40 people into a big psychoeducation group, which that's the norm and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I like to figure out sometimes when I have the resources, if we can be more specific um, and utilize specific group structures for certain populations to improve outcomes. So that's usually a little bit more down the line from when I started a new facility, um, once I've kind of got everything flowing the way I want. But there's lots of different things you can do like that. Another thing that I'm working on, too, is really um, kind of trying to use data, data analytics to pair patient to therapist. So we were kind of mentioning before how some therapists have different skill sets. Well, what if you have a therapist that has, you know, 90% completion rates with alcoholics that have comorbid depressive disorders? <clears throat> if, you could, if you could pinpoint that and start to make your decisions based on, you know, success rates over the long term and with those specific variables, then you're on uh, a much better track to tailoring the program to the specific patient. Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity in the space for tailored treatments, right? I mean, but, you know, it's hard to do, right? It depends on the size of your center and the program and staff resources and, I mean, how many patients you have, right? If I don't have 10 patients for, you know, a different group, then it's kind of hard to do. Um, but, yeah, I just I agree with you on that point. Um, looking at the, the programs, let's just do some maybe interesting examples for people. What would be one of the more challenging situations you faced um, that you had to solve as you came into a new program? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, every, every one of them has definitely brought different kinds of challenges. Um, I think that one of the areas that I've seen in, in multiple facilities and talking with colleagues that have worked for other companies is always strengthening the, um, the family therapy component. Um, so I think that a lot of people think that, you know, you're just there to treat the patient and the patient, that's the only thing you need to work on and focus on. But if you, if you neglect the family component, a lot of times what's going to happen is they're going to leave, they're going to go home and nothing's changed at home. And that, that relapse happens pretty quickly, but this is a family system illness. Um, very often the family members have been enabling the illness, whether they realize it or not. There's a ton of codependency going on. But oftentimes the family members are also using or they have, you know, co-occurring mental health disorders that may have developed from this addiction, like anxiety disorders or sleep disorders. And if you don't put a lot of effort and energy into that as well, um, then you're not really you're not really going the, the extra mile uh, and treating the whole the whole situation. Uh, I think you know, the toughest thing in this business um, is is when you have high levels of early discharge. Um, they're called different things, different places, ATR, AMA, ACA. I've heard, I've heard them all called different things. But when people leave early, um, your interventions fail or break down. A lot of times where the, where the intervention will fail or, or break down is when the family is not on board or not willing to set those firm boundaries. So sometimes the toughest thing for me is getting the, the, the staff to really understand that and put the, the same amount of energy and effort that they do into the patient into the family and the family system as well. 
I love that you say that. I mean, that is one of the biggest gaps I see in this space in terms of providing effective treatment is the lack of family involvement, you know, at a serious level, you know, not just a weekend family camp or whatever. Um, because it is, it is absolutely uh, an issue that's driven by family dynamics, um, especially social dynamics. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be immediate family, right? I mean, it could be work environment or school environment, but more than likely it's family. And the more that we can involve them, the more likely we are to have successful outcomes long-term in treatment. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So I agree. great. Uh, yeah. Love that point. Um, so how about the biggest win? Like what's one of the, the greatest successes you've had? What's something interesting that you've done that just really was run away in, in terms of how well it turned out? Well, I think so far in my career, um, turning point in South Haven, Mississippi would have to be the biggest win. Um, when I came to that facility, it had great people. It had good bones, a good foundation, but it was one of our um, kind of lagging behind facilities as far as census goes. We had an outpatient program that had, you know, 10, 11 people in it. You know, it was more of a it wasn't really a, a focal point of our program. And we, you know, we did groups and stuff, but it was small. And, and the inpatient census was small. And in, in a very short period of time, just a few months, and now for, for, for the last few months, um, Turning Point is one of our most successful facil facilities at addiction campuses. Um, we, we, we added a few more beds to the inpatient unit. It's, it's full almost all the time. Our outpatient unit went from you know, 10, 11 people to its peak of 50 to 55 people. Um, at, and we've, we've, we've taken that outpatient center and turned it into something really special. Um, it is, it's community, it's a community driven uh, facility. So we get some, we get a lot of people who are driving in from the local community. We've recently partnered with a community college. We have our patients doing job training on the weekends. Um, I think recently we did a, We had 10 or 11 patients uh, all work on getting forklift certification so that's the I'm most proud of that in my career so far. Um, and the, 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 I think the most important piece of that was not just, you know, getting everything online and providing the leadership it needed, but it was the community outreach. And again, I have to, um, to give a shout out to my, my good friend and uh, Stacy Dodd at Turning Point. He, uh, he's been in that area for a very long time and he knows every single person in that town. He's just one of those guys you can, he can strike up a conversation with, with anybody at any time. I've always admired that talent. So he plugged me into the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he introduced me to the mayor. Um, and we did so many community events. And I think I did over 30 television inter interviews in the Memphis market um, during the year of 2018. And my message was always very clear from the start. I wanted to become a beacon of hope in that community. And we st when we started off, not a lot of people knew who we are. But if you go down to that community now, you can talk to almost anyone down there, and they all know who Turning Point is and where it is. That's fantastic. I'm curious, you know, you're talking about that community engagement. So before you came in, what percentage of admissions were coming from, like, out of the area or out of state? Do you remember? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but we were – we have a significant number of out-of-state admissions. Um, so I would have to say it was the majority. Um, but now for sure, um, again, without having the numbers right in front of me, we do have a lot more local. And when I may say local, I kind of mean Tennessee and Mississippi. Um, but we have a lot more kind of local drive-in. And we even have people coming in that just drive in from home for our nighttime IOP um, MAT programs. And we really become a kind of a resource to our local community. 
And DeSoto County in Mississippi has the highest overdose death rates in the state of Mississippi. So it was desperately needed, and uh, we got more work to do. Yeah, see, it's so interesting because I mean, we talk about this constantly with our clients, and the same on our end, the successes that we have are when you localize your campaigns, right? When you're having community outreach, when you're taking your spend and focusing it into a certain geographic area, you know, usually not more than like 100 miles from the center. And if it's an IOP or an OP, you know, just maybe 30. Um, but so many programs I've seen have made this mistake of trying to run these massive marketing budgets and pull people in nationally when there's a huge need in the local community. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with that com completely. And we've been, we've been really focused more recently on kind of that hundred to 200 mile radius, kind of just like what you're saying. And that's also, I love doing all that stuff. And that's when I can get in front of a group of like-minded people who are all on the front lines of this disorder and kind of speak to them about you know where we're going and the trends in the industry and the, and the current crisis and what we can do as a team. I love doing that. And one of the things I, I talk about all the time is I find it very interesting. People will ask me a lot about my competition. You know, what, who's your competition in your area? And, and I'll be completely honest, half the time, I don't even know because <laughs> I, it doesn't, it, I don't feel like other facilities are my competition. I feel like there are allies uh, and we're all fighting the same war. And a lot, you know, a lot of times we develop relationships with them, referral partners, you know, um, but I spend my time just trying to educate and get in front of as many people as possible. Uh, and that's, that's the funnest part of my job. I love that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I, even, even as I'm, we're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, but we've got three clients that are full right now and they're just consistently full, right? They just never have census issues. Um, and all of them are just 100%. All of our marketing has always been focused in a 60 mile radius around the center. Like it's never gone beyond that. Um, and that's, I think why they're full, right? And it's not, obviously it's not just us and our marketing, but their whole approach is community integration, right? Everything they do is outreaching to the community. Everything they do is building relationships with the people around them. And so it, it's helped them stay, making sure they're meeting the needs of that community that they're in. And so people are going to find them. People want to use their services. You know, it's a hell of a lot easier than being in Tennessee and then trying to find someone in New York that needs addiction treatment support, right? It's just logistically yeah, it's harder that's, <laughs> that's, that's and that's exactly what i did at turning point that was my focus completely and that's exactly what i'm going to be doing out here in texas as well awesome well i really appreciate the time today ted is there any final thoughts that you have or anything that you want to point out that we weren't able to get to um no i think i think we covered a lot of it i really appreciate you having me on the show nick as always it was great it's great talking to you um really look forward to to speaking with you again soon yeah, same here. So if listeners want to get in touch with you or addiction campuses, you know, what, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, you can email me directly at tbender at addictioncampus.com um, or kind of you can kind of go on the website and reach out um, through the, the home office in Nashville, Tennessee. But um, I'm always uh, I'm always open to follow up and take any questions, further questions. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And to our listeners out there, as always, I'm Nick Jaworski, uh, owner of Circle Social Inc. and host of the Recovery Executive Podcast here. If you ever need help with marketing or operational support, please reach out to us through our website at circlesocialinc.com. And you can find this podcast wherever podcasts are found for download or streaming. We appreciate it and look forward to you all joining us next time.